0: Uh, Last weekend, we um, did an event as a church. We've said that this. School where we meet is more than a place uh, to meet, but a people to love, and we had uh, a bunch of you come and serve this campus and uh, do a whole bunch of things as far as uh, landscaping and building benches and cleaning, and uh, we also worked on the campus that we're going to, Blackford uh, Elementary, and did painting and some of these sort of things there, and and it was awesome, and so what I loved is seeing families and uh, students and everyone come out to serve together, Uh, and Uh, My kids were here. I was actually at the Blackford campus, and my wife and kids were at this one serving, and my wife sees my youngest son, Miles. He's four years old, and she sees him from a distance and notices that his hand is in a precarious place as a four-year-old, and so she kind of looks at him, and his hand's just down his pants, you know, and so you know the whole more is caught than taught I, this wasn't caught okay this wasn't caught in the home that's just uh, he, somehow he, he just had his hand in his pants and just like what's going on here I need to go have a conversation as she starts to walk over there he pulls out an orange slice <laughs> and just starts chomping on on an orange slice you know, he must have got confused with fruit of a loom. He thought fruit in the loom. Um, I, don't know what, I, I don't know what went through his mind that, that made him think that his underwear was the appropriate place to store his uh, snack. Uh, that's not how we do it in the Ingram household. Um, but he did. It was just hilarious. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? But here's one thing that those of us that are parents, we know this. We understand that there's points in our kids' lives that, that there's some revolutions that need to be made. There's things that need to revolutionize in the way they think There needs to be some changes in how they think about life and where an appropriate snack is to be held. Uh, There's some revolutions in what they believe to be true about life, and there's definitely revolutions in the way they need to behave. It's true. I mean, if you have kids, and especially those that are just starting on this journey, you don't know it yet, but your kids will need some adjustments along the way. All right? I mean, that's just part of it. I I just remember uh, one of my kids, the most beautiful, sweet, incredibly kind, was the sweetest little liar as well. And like, where'd you learn that? And and what we know to be true as parents is that revolutions need to happen internally uh, in in our kids' lives. And, And the truth is, that needs to happen for us too. There's a revolution, and we're in a series called Revolution. Because there's a, there's a revolution that needs to happen, I believe, not just in the church as if it's kind of out there somewhere, way out there. There's a revolution that needs to happen in this church. And there's a revolution in the way we think and the way what we believe and how we behave that, that needs to happen in our lives. See, somehow along the way, we've come to believe and gotten comfortable with the reality that Christianity is this religion that makes me feel good, and I get comfortable, and I show up, and we have nice, comfortable seats, we're in this theater, and then I go and live my life. Fundamentally, Jesus did not come to institute a new religion. He came to begin a revolution, one fundamentally of the heart, to turn your world and my world upside down, to bring new life, to infuse the dead to life, not to re-kind of do and kind of make up your old life and make it just a little bit better. He actually wants to change and radically change your life and somehow we've gotten satisfied with the status quo and going through the motions somehow along the way i think we just kind of in for lack of a better way we're storing we're storing orange slices in our underwear and just thinking that's normal see you know the difference with christianity of and every other major religion. Every major religions are based on ideas, thoughts, philosophies, and concepts. Do this, work your way, get here. Christianity fundamentally is not based on teaching, ideas, or philosophies, by the way, though it has great teaching, philosophies, and ideas. Christianity is fundamentally based on one incredible supernatural event that, that we celebrated four weeks ago. What is it? Resurrection. Come on. Resurrection. Resurrection. That's right. Yes, A plus this morning. Way to go. We'll give you a star. And I mean, it's great. Um, remember that? Anyone, Sunday school star, final board? Okay, just me. Resurrection. See, Christianity, listen to this is based on a person, not an idea. The revolution begins and ends with Jesus. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then this is dead. It makes no sense that Christianity that we meet 2,000 years later because of some carpenter in an obscure town in the obscure part of the world that had no authority began to teach. It makes no sense. Unless, unless He was who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. See, because here's the reality. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then everything he said was true. And at that point, we then go and say, you are Savior, you are Master, you are God, and we'll follow you. We don't follow ideas, we don't follow philosophies, we follow a person, a living, reigning king, and his name is Jesus. Really good place for an amen, by the way. You just missed it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, a few of you are with me this morning. Now, It's time, not for something out there, but hear us. See, God wants to do that in you. He wants you to experience the risen Jesus, the person, not an idea. He wants you to experience new life. We can't say we're followers of Jesus and not know anything about the one we follow. That's why we're spending the next season in the book of Mark and unpacking uh, who Jesus is. Who is it that we're following? And what does it mean to us and how do we live out? How do we begin to bring our life in alignment with his kingdom? Because if he is and he did what he said to do, then life makes sense. Life was designed to be lived that way. It is, in fact, living how you were created and meant and intended to live. If you got your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, open them up to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. As we close out this week, we're going to close out the concept of revolution. We'll still be in Mark next week, but it's why Jesus is distinctly unreligious. If you don't like religion and all that kind of stuff, next series is going to be great for you because what you're going to find out, Jesus didn't either. And he was deeply unreligious. But uh, this morning, we're closing out the concept of revolution. And in that, uh, we're going to see a typical day in the life of Jesus. Literally 24 hours. We're going to teach over 24 hours. This is what a normal day of the person, Jesus, who walked and lived on this planet, what his day looked like. Anybody watch 24, the series? Anybody used to watch it? Yeah, you're with me? Come on now. All right. I love 24. I I'm not so sure about the—how you, you feel about the one right now? You haven't seen any of it? Oh, see, I'm, I'm up to date. But, uh, you know, huge expectations, excitement, because that was like the show that changed my life. And, you know, my wife and I, we, I that's, that sounds really lame. And, it, and now that it came out of my mouth, I realize it is really lame. Um, but I mean, no, we, we, we I love 24 so much that we would go to the Blockbusters. Remember when we had Blockbusters? Remember that? Uh, and we'd go rent the VHS and go around and try to find all the different videos. And we, had, we were in Chicago, so we were driving to multiple uh, uh, Blockbusters trying to get every season down. Um, I guess there was only one season at the time, but watch all 24 hours. And somehow Jack Bauer, you know, he had this incredible conflict and crisis, and the whole world was about to erupt. And in 24, incredibly, in 24 hours, he saved the world. You know, I I don't know how he's going to do it in 12 this time around, but I guess we'll find out. Uh, But this... Is maybe nothing like 24, so that took us down a rabbit hole. But this is literally 24 hours. It's a snapshot. If you wanted to know what a day in the life of Jesus looked like, it's right here. And and what you'll get a picture of, this is the type of life and type of way Jesus has invited us to live in. This is what a revolutionary life looks like. Pick it up, verse uh, 21. They went to Capernaum. They, meaning Jesus and his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Uh, First, we'll do a little background work, if you wouldn't mind with me. Uh, And the first just underlined Capernaum, Sabbath, synagogue. We kind of need to know what these are. And uh, you'll notice in the back of your notes, you have a glossary of uh, terms And you can kind of have that for your own research there. But Capernaum was a city that was a coastal city on Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, in the northwest. And you can actually put it up here. And Capernaum was this uh, northwestern city all the way up at the top, you can see there. uh, And it was located along a major trade route. So it was a major trade route for the Galilean area. And this was a place where Jesus had as his hub of ministry uh, when he was in the Galilee area area. He would go down, later we will study to the Decapolis area and do ministry over there, and then as he begins to head towards uh, his final days, he'll begin to do ministry in Jerusalem, which is south of here. So as you travel south, it's not on here, you'll see Samaria, a region where the Jewish people would actually travel around Samaria to get to Jerusalem for those who lived in the Galilee area. But that's where he is. He's on this coastal town, major trade route uh, for there, and he's, it's at Sabbath time. And Sabbath was a command of God for the Israelite people to trust him. He knew uh, in and of ourselves that we would work ourselves to death because the two main concerns of our life is one around security, and the other is uh, around uh, supplying, is if we can provide and if we can protect. Your two biggest fears are around those two fears, whether it's with people or with stuff, is how do I provide, especially as parents? Now all of a sudden you have this crazy, like, how am I going to provide and how am I going to protect? All of our anxieties, uh, circle around those two big concepts. And Jesus uh, the invitation from God was, "Hey, I want you to take one day where you rest, where you trust me, where you realize I'm the one who provides and I'm the one who protects." And so you stop and you wait and you take a full 24 hours. Now, in for the Jewish people, 24 hours was a different they uh, allotment of time. So it started Friday at dusk and went to Saturday at dusk. So a new day started in the evening at like 6 p.m. So if Sabbath started Friday evening at 6 p.m. and they weren't allowed to do any work. They to rest and it was created for man's enjoyment to get rest. And then it would go to Saturday at 6 p.m. or dusk. And so Sabbath was this time that God created for the people of God to get refreshed. And they would go to then what was called a synagogue. And a synagogue was in placement of those who were dispersed. If you'll notice on the map, you can go back there. They're nowhere close to Jerusalem. And so they couldn't go to the temple to worship, and so there was these synagogues, and everywhere there were ten families, they would create a synagogue that was within walking distance for the Jewish people. These were primarily a place of teaching. And so during the week, this is where your kids went to school, and that's where they would get trained in the Torah, and they would learn the first five books of the Bible, and so the kids would learn there throughout the week. And then on Saturday, they would have a worship service, kind of like ours, but different. Their worship service would include uh, no music. So it was all teaching, didactic-driven service. It would begin with an opening prayer. Then they'd have scripture readings. They'd read from the law, and then they would read from the prophets. Then they'd have a rabbi uh, teach a sermon. There was no one who really was a paid staff for synagogue. And so when there was a visiting rabbi, they were stoked. They probably didn't say the word stoked. Stoked. But they were stoked to have him teach. So Jesus would travel, end up at a synagogue because he was the rabbi. They'd say, come teach, come lecture, come teach us from the Torah, from the law, and, and teach us. And so then there would be a time of sermon, then there would be a benediction or a closing blessing. And this happened every Sabbath. And so they would go to synagogue as a family, and then after synagogue they'd come and they'd have a big family meal together that had to be prepared the day before. Now, for in the ancient day, and even to today, to try to protect and obey God to the, exactly, they've made all these extra rules. So when I was in Israel, uh, it was a long time ago, uh, I was a high school student, but when I was there, like, they they weren't even allowed to flip on their lights uh, because that was considered work, and so they would have it on a timer in that day. So they'd have the TV set to a timer to go on so they could turn on the TV in the, in the, uh, um, elevator that we we're in, there's a Shabbat elevator, and then there was basically a Gentile elevator, and the Shabbat elevator on, on Saturday, all the lights were lit up, you know, and so to go, because to work would be to push a button, and so like, I can't work, and so what happened that was, Sabbath was made for man, uh, God made it for man for rest and to trust him, all of a sudden became this real thing, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks, where it just became this big burden, or you can't work, you can't do these things, and how do we fully obey? And it was good intentions, but it began to make uh, for some destructive results. And so you have Jesus in Capernaum. This is going to be his home base. In fact, Simon's house, uh, Simon Peter, is going to be the home base where he's going to be launching ministry out of. It's Sabbath time, he's in synagogue, he's teaching, and see what happens. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had, and circle that word, authority. He had authority. Eskousen is the Greek word there. It literally means, uh, it's where we get our word author. Uh, He taught as one as the author, the originator. In fact, the word literally means out of the original. That, that when Jesus taught, it was as if the author of life, can you imagine that, was speaking with authority and conviction. When the rabbis taught, they didn't teach with, this is what's right, and this is what's true, and here's how to live. They would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they would always go back, and I mean, everything they said would go, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they would always quote one another, and when Jesus taught, it was one with authority and conviction. He said, this is true, and this is what life means, and when he taught, It would bring a conviction and reality to, to how God's word met with your life. And they're like, wow, we've never experienced this before. And not only did he teach with authority, but then he has authority. It's one thing to talk a good talk. The other thing to back up the game, right? It's one thing to say that you're a great basketball player. It's another to get on the court and then play, and so he teaches with authority, but then he has an incredible interruption. Verse 23 Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He has this, I mean, just think about it. We're, we're in here, we're teaching, and some guy yells out, Hey, you know, I'm going be like, What in the world? And that's where I go, ushers? If we had ushers, you know, grab him. (laughs) Jesus says, looks at the man, says, be quiet. Um, Literally, shut up. Stern, harsh, quick rebuke. And then he says this, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now the people, they were all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? I mean, this, this is revolutionary. You, you have to understand the words and the way Jesus taught and what he said, the concepts and the ideas were revolutionary about loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. These things were not in, in the Roman, the Greek, or even the Jewish way of thought. And then it, it's confirmed with an incredible authority and power over the devil and the enemy and darkness. And they're going... He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Now, news spread quickly over the whole region. Now, the, the issue of demonization in the ancient world was a widespread pandemic. We, we experienced it uh, a good bit uh, today, and probably in our post-scientific world in America, we dismiss much of it. Uh, if you believe in God, it's actually a pretty easy thing then to believe that there are supernatural forces of darkness, uh, and we've, many have experienced such. Uh, the, we have a team that's leaving for Haiti, and they will experience it as it is uh, prevalent and deep and dark, and they there is a spiritual voodoo-ness there that is evil, and you can sense it, and you can see it, and you can uh, actually see those who are literally possessed. Now, it was one of these widespread pandemics and in the ancient world, and they tried every which way to Alleviate or deliver someone who is possessed by a demon. I mean, they had incantations, spells. They tried all kinds of things. There's there's all these secret formulas and ways that they tried to work stuff up. They even had a thing called trepanning, and this was a, a common way in which how to alleviate someone from an evil spirit. Trepanning was this: they would take some. I don't know fully how they did it, but they would bore a hole. In someone's head, thinking that this would then give, allow the evil spirit to release from the body. Now, if you survived that process, think about it 2,000 years ago, not a whole lot of um, anything really. Now, if you survived that, they would take that bone and attach it to a necklace and then wear it around your neck uh, as a way to ward off future evil spirits. Crazy, right? This was such a a widespread way of dealing with uh, demoniacs that, in in fact, one grave that they dug up, they found over 260 people who had drilled holes in their head, this trepan. Jesus comes on the scene. There is no secret formula. There is no, you know, magic voodoo, all these incantations. Jesus says, be quiet. Come out of him. No one has ever seen authority like that. See the authority wasn't in the spell the authority wasn't in the incantation of the process the authority resided in Jesus alone See he had revolutionary authority And by the way those in his day never questioned his ability to heal Just saying verse 27 The people, or verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, had this moment, teaching, interruption, God shows up. They went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's the one we know as Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. Now, fever in that day was a life-threatening illness. It was one, they didn't have the capacity to heal that right away. If you had a fever, that was one where, hey, we're not sure if you're going to make it. She has a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Just think about it. They saw, okay, we're starting to follow this new rabbi. He's got these incredible, powerful words. We never heard anything like it. And then when he speaks, man, the dominion the, the of darkness scatters. He has spiritual authority like we've never have seen. Maybe he can have physical authority, too. I said, hey, my mother-in-law, will, will you will you Will you you heal my mother-in-law? Jesus then, so he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. There was all kinds of ways that they would go through to try to heal. In fact, one very superstitious thing is they would actually tie a knife in the hair, and there was this ritualistic process. Jesus does none of that. Takes her by the hand. Healed immediately. Helped her up the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Now now, take this, this isn't this some sort of chauvinistic and she waited on them, she, this was, think about this, full and complete healing to be able to serve. And, and when you've experienced the healing of God, when you've experienced the intervention of his love and grace into your life, your only response and my only response is, God, how can I serve you? experiences this healing. Jesus, Jesus' healing power spiritually and then physically, and then we see this is not just this, is quantitatively, that his power isn't limited. It's not just special times when he kind of has this moment where, okay, I can do this, but it, it's not like he has power that's running out, that I did this, but I got to kind of recharge here. Notice this, that evening after sunset, so when Sabbath was over, when people could finally walk Uh, beyond the distance they were allotted, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons who would not, uh, but he would not let them speak because they knew who he was. I just love this. Jesus was never too tired to heal. Think about this long day. I mean, he starts off. It's probably started around 6 a.m. Ends up at synagogue. He's the he's the teacher, the guest speaker at synagogue. He has this massive interruption. The demon shows up. He shows uh, the power of God. Demon gone. And then he gets home. He's ready to kick up his feet, watch ESPN, and hang out. And Peter's like, "Hey, man, um, my mom-in-law. Yeah, I do like my mother-in-law, um, and I do want her healed." He's like, "Could you do something?" And now, post-dusk, post the whole town, a couple thousand people outside the door. No, so Jesus saw the home, by the way. This is interesting. Jesus saw the home as a place of ministry, not just a place of refuge and rest. It was the outworking of which he did these miracles. He didn't go, no, 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 this is not the right time. No, 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 I don't. Have. He was present in the moment with people's pain. He didn't push them off to the side. They came. He's like, I'm here. I'm with you. I am. And I will. And I'm willing. If you come, I am willing. And the same is true today. He doesn't get tired of you calling to Him and coming back to Him and crying out for Him and needing Him. He says, I am and I will and I am willing if you will come. Verse 35. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, literally in the middle of the night, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where He prayed. Now notice he had an incredibly demanding day. And most likely the, he went to maybe even midnight healing. 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, he gets up to spend time with the Father. Simon and his companions went to look at, for him. They, and they found it, explained, everyone's looking for you. I mean, they're riding on a high, they're following this rabbi, they don't know what's gonna happen, and all of a sudden he shows up and he shows up with power and authority and they're like all right baby let's get it going come on man this is a big deal we got a, you, you see that man we got crowds we got people following this is a big deal and jesus looks at him after a time of solitude after a time with his father let's go somewhere else <laughs> you just imagine this come on come on jesus we, we're building a base we're building momentum we got momentum here no no let's go somewhere else let's let's move on to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. Notice that when you spend time with the Father, when you take those moments of quietness, it gives you incredible focus. That is why I came. The call was not to be famous and to be a somebody. It was be faithful to what God called him to. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, for us, for us, I believe, as we're talking, there's a revolution. There's a revolution in how we relate to God and then how we relate to others that needs to occur. And what we see in the life of Jesus is an invitation for our lives as well. Let me just identify a few things of what we learn from Jesus out of this text. And hopefully pinpoint some things that I, I pray that God will use in your life begin to stir afresh in our hearts that we might see this city changed that's why we exist not to gather but to scatter and see this city changed in the name and the power of jesus amen by myself what we learn from jesus first thing we learn from jesus is jesus has a revolutionary power has present tense not past tense, if he did die and rise again from the dead, and by the way, if you don't believe it, I understand that. It's an incredible, incredible story. But a third of the world does believe it, so I invite you to really wrestle with that reality. If he did indeed do that, that means Jesus is currently now living and reigning the king of the universe, enthroned in power, and he longs to extend his kingdom in you and through you. Jesus has revolutionary power. This means Jesus is in control, even when everything else feels out of control. This means Jesus has control even when everything looks completely desperate and out of control and you don't know what to do. This is incredibly comforting as parents, by the way, and as we're celebrating our baby dedications this morning. See, when I first dedicated my kids, especially my first kid, wasn't in a moment uh, on a stage. I wish I had that much faith at the front end. It was in a moment of crisis, When my daughter Ella was born, she was born with an intestinal disease. It wasn't able to process uh, nutrients and literally wasn't able to poop. Um, And as a result, was failing to thrive. For six months, we're trying to figure out what's wrong. We just know she's not healthy and not growing, going to specialists. Finally, they figure out she has this intestinal disease, going to have to do surgery on her. Think about it. I know you guys have your little baby. I'm just seeing. I forget. I mean, my girl's nine, almost ten now. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's freaky. Uh, but I don't. I can't even remember being able to hold her in the crook of my arm, you know. And realizing she's gonna have to be put under for surgery. I gotta tell you, those are the moments when life feels out of control, when it's painful, when it's hard. And I got to be honest, I had wrestling matches, screaming matches with God. I was honest with him in ways that, if I really understood the power of God, I probably wouldn't have been. But But what I understood was I had an illusion of control. I had no ability to do or change anything. So doesn't it make sense to trust the one who's actually in control? I I remember, and I I don't know why God heals and why he doesn't in those moments. I don't have answers for all those sort of things. I do know that I got to watch a miracle up close. Day before she was to go into surgery, our whole church is a community like this. We're meeting in a high school theater in Georgia praying for my daughter. As we're praying for her, that next day, something that hadn't happened in six months, she pooped. We prayed for poop. That's God's answer to prayer. That's like a sign, like a, a dirty diaper is like one of those incredible signs from God in our family. We're like, yeah! And so we called the doctor said, hey, she pooped. She's starting to process. Can we just delay it? Is that all right? And the doctor said, okay. See, Jesus still today has revolutionary power. It wasn't for back then, it's for now. In fact, the scripture tells us that the same power that rose Christ from the dead dwells in those of us who have surrendered our lives and followers of him. He says, I've placed that in you, that you might live out this revolution, this new life. See, the reason I think we don't experience that is we don't experience the God who's able because we often don't trust him to the place where we're not able. See, we stay in comfortable, safe, secure, this place area. And as long as you stay in the place where you got it, you don't need miracles In fact, you don't need God far too many. revolution that needs to happen in this church and in us is that we have the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could think or ask. And so individually, we begin to trust him in those areas. And when he says step out, we go, I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm going to step out. When he calls you over here to talk to that neighbor, that seems ridiculous. I've never talked to that neighbor. You step out and you will begin and we will begin to see the power of God active in this church, in this city, and we'll see the city changed that's where revolution begins with understanding who has the authority question here what do you believe about Jesus' power to care for you I mean honestly what do you believe about his power to really care for the deep concerns and needs of your life second thing we learned from Jesus, he had a revolutionary, he has a revolutionary power. second is a, he has a revolutionary perspective. The way he viewed life was fundamentally different than the way we view life. Your perspective is simply this, right? Your perspective is how you see life and how you view and understand life determines how you live out life, right? How we see a problem, how we see an issue, and how we respond to it is all connected. The way Jesus viewed life see this jesus viewed disruptions as opportunities not obstacles think about this look at those three sections of miracles right jesus think about this he's in the middle of teaching it was a massive disruption if someone interrupts me right here i'll be like ah freaked out and then like try to get my pace back like okay all right He's like, that's not a disruption. That's an opportunity for God to show up and work. He's ready to re- rest and relax at home. Peter's like, hey, man, I, I know the game's on, but, but my mom, my mother-in-law needs healing. Would you mind? Then, I mean, it's, it's nighttime, and he's got thousands of people that show up. See, he fundamentally viewed disruptions not as this intrusion to life, not as something to kind of get through. He said he viewed it as an opportunity. If you'll notice and if you'll read through the gospel account, what you'll notice is just about every single miracle happens because of disruptions. They weren't pre-planned. They were someone that intruded upon. And Jesus was present in the moment to the disruptions that came. God, God determines our encounters, the things that happen throughout our day, but we determine our engagement. What will you do with the disruptions of your day? Could it be, could it be that we don't see the miraculous because we run from the disruptions of life, and we want to make it easy, and we don't want to have those conversations, and we don't... We see them as obstacles to get around instead of opportunities for God to work. Jesus had a revolutionary power, revolutionary perspective, and finally, a revolutionary habit. Did you notice it? He had a habit. A habit is simply something repeated over and over and over again, a rhythm of life. He had a habit that allowed him to do what he did, by the way. We often think of Jesus as the God-man, and we put his deity right up here and his humanity way down here. And so we think the way Jesus lived out his life was he had this s underneath his shirt, and the way he did stuff was, you know what? When, When a miracle and something needed... Here I am! Superman is here, right? Or Mighty Mouse is here was the music I used right there. Uh, and, so, and so we think all of a sudden he had access to what we didn't. Jesus, being fully God, fully man, Scripture tells us that he veiled his deity, taking on humanity, lived in the way that we're called and designed to live. In fact, we're invited to live out and do the same things Jesus did. That's why he gave us his spirit, and yet there was a habit that allowed him to operate out of the overflow of his relationship with the Father, not out of the reserve. And his, what Jesus simply did this. Jesus hid with the Father before heading into the day. This was a habit, and you'll read through Mark. Mark notes it more than any other gospel. You'll read and see this isn't just a one-time deal. This is what he did. This is a habit. This is how he lived you know, I, yeah, yeah. You don't understand. My my life is really busy, Ingram. You don't know. I, I work at one of those financial institutions, and man, they have me cranking round the clock, and near every end of the quarter, it's crazy. And you don't. Know, I'm just demanding. I got to measure up, and I got to do this. Jesus gets off a demanding day where everybody's wanting something from him. I mean, at the end of the day, he's got thousands of people. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And are like, ah! And it says, in the middle of the night. See, I love the title of this book. A guy named Bill Hybels wrote it. And the title of the book says, Too Busy Not to Pray. See, if, if, if Jesus truly is all-powerful and in control, doesn't it make the most amount of sense that you would spend the first and best time with him to receive from him to be able to do what you cannot do on your own? Instead of running to the next problem, and the next fire, you would fill up and go, I, I'm gonna hide with God, I'm gonna hide with the Father before heading out into the day. See, I think the reason why disruptions are so disturbing to us is many of us are operating on our reserve. I know that's true for me. And so our reserve is only about this. If we have like an emotional gas tank to our life, and our reserve's right here, so we go into the day, and really we have just enough gas to get through the day. And a disruption comes, and it just kind of goes, oh my goodness! I don't have enough to engage. Where you would start a habit and a rhythm of hiding with God, bring Him the first, the best of your time. Why? Why? Why did Jesus? Anybody? Just real quick. Why did Jesus meet early with God? Anyone? I didn't hear it. Sorry. Yeah. Great. Exactly. Some of you are like, I'm not mourning people. I'm a night person. Amen, <laughs> Amen by myself. Uh, let's just get to the why. He met with his father at a time where he didn't have the demands and the pressures and the people tugging at him when it could just be him. What he had to apply was the spiritual principle of mind over mattress. You're catching on. There you go. Forget about the time, but when is a time when it's distraction-free? When is a time where you don't have the demands of people? When is a time where the pressures and all that come, where you can set that aside and you can be with the Father? So, here's the deal. Identify it and step into it. Uh, last service we had a whole bunch of college students and uh, they, they come to the early service, which I love, and I was talking directly to them. But I, in, I began a habit in college that has been so helpful to my life. And, and in college I started this because I was never spending time with God and I had this longing, I'm like, man, if he's the God in the universe, if that's the most important relationship in all of life, if that's how I'm designed and created to be, I want to spend time with him, but I never have time. I'm mean, a college student, life's busy. Isn't it funny how we think we're busy back then? And then, you know, all of a sudden you're like, you get married, and you're like you weren't busy, and then all of a sudden you have a kid, and you're like, Oh, that was, being married is a breeze. And then you have three and then ten or however many kids you have. See, our time and the busyness is really relative to our capacity of where we're at. We all have time. It's whether we'll create the margin for it. In college, I just made this I had this rule for me. Before I do homework, I'll spend time with Jesus. And I had to do homework every day. So I said, before I do homework, that transition into the work world. Before I work, and this is this is what works for me. Find out something that works for you. Before I work, I'll spend time with God. So that means for me, I do get up a little bit earlier. I'm not an early person. I love nights. But The only thing I'm good at at night is watching TV or like playing music. I, I can't really think well. So I get up early. Notice this. When we prioritize our life around what's most important, we will then be most productive. The, uh, I don't know if you saw this in verse 38, did you catch this? Jesus, in verse 38, he spends time with the Father, and then his disciples come, and they're like, hey, let's get after him. He says, let's go somewhere else. He was clear on his purpose. See, so many many of us are so active and so busy, and busyness is a badge as if you've kind of made it, but there's a massive difference between activity and productivity, Activity is being busy, but no forward movement. Productivity is a clarity on why you're here and stepping forward into the things God's called you to. When you hide with the Father, when you be with Him first, when you prioritize life around what's most important, you will be most productive. Question here. Are the habits of your life sustaining or draining you? I mean, I mean, are they ones in which they're refilling your tank? Are you able to live out of the overflow and so you have margin to give to disruptions? You're experiencing his power and his grace. Or are the rhythms or the habits of your life, are they draining you? See, that's it's discipline. I, I know it's a weird, it's a hard word. It's just discipline, that's all it is. It's like a diet, Right? Everyone knows what to do. It's just hard to do it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. <all> <laughs> See, would you do this? And, and we, got, uh, we had a friend that gave a bunch of them. Would you get into God's word? In fact, I got homework for you. I'm going to start giving you homework because we fundamentally got to become a people of his word. He says, this word will transform you and change you. That is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. That it will bring life. That you would say, okay, God, I want to get to know you. I don't want to just say I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, you've got to know Jesus. Not just know about him, you've got to know him. In fact, so your homework this week is just simply to read where we're going to teach next week. Read Mark 1, 40 to the 45. We'll start a new series Unreligious." And I just want you to do this. Every morning, just read that passage slowly, meditatively. Say, God, would you speak to me? And would you show me what to do? It's that simple. Would you speak to me? Read that passage. God, would you speak to me this morning? I know I'm reading the same thing over and over. Here's the amazing thing about God's word. God's word has a depth that you will never unpack the riches and the greatness of it. You can stay in one text for the rest of your life and you still won't unpack how deep and how rich and how beautiful it is and that you would sit in it and say, God, would you teach me? Will you show me what to do? Jesus didn't come so that we could have a religious experience. He came to start a revolution. Some of us need to move and have a shift from following ideas to following Jesus. And there's a deciding point, and maybe it's this morning, where you go, okay, I've gotten comfortable. I've gotten complacent. I go through the motion, and it's time to stop going to church. It's time to be the church. So I'm going to start meeting with God. I'm going to be attentive to disruptions, and I'm going to rely on his power. How about you? Would you stand and we'll pray. God, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have come and you have saved us. And I just uh, pray for the person that doesn't know you, that's maybe heard about you for the very first time, that you would give them the courage to, to have a conversation with somebody and that they would come to know you. And I pray for uh, the person here that's been kind of on the fence with you, God, and just going through the motion. May we be a church that follows you holy Jesus, in every way. God, would you change us and start a revolution in us, and as a result, change the world around us for your namesake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.